0: I have to admit to you all, I'm actually really nervous this morning. Uh, I'm in front of you every week and uh, have preached here a couple times. Today I'm nervous. Um, it's, it's true. It's fitting. Uh, the passage we're reading from, we've got a couple, but uh, in 1 Corinthians, we'll be reading from 1 Corinthians 1 in a little bit. Right after 1 Corinthians 1 comes 1 Corinthians 2. And in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul writes When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on man's wisdom, but on God's power. And not because I'm holy and like the Apostle Paul, but because I'm trembling and fearful this morning. We come together to the Word uh, needing to rely on the power of the Spirit to reveal God's self to us this morning. They say that wisdom is found in the number of gray hairs on one's head, and you'll see I'm not quite gray yet. So don't expect much wisdom. But here, do expect wisdom from the Spirit. He's been around for a long time. Hear the word of the Lord from Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 1. If you'd like to turn to it, by all means, do so. Paul was just in Athens before this. And in Athens, it's often said he gave his best sermon ever. He was wise and he was clear and articulate and he argued well with good reason. And he also had very few converts. Um, And so when he arrived in Corinth, he was maybe disheartened. Maybe he was scared. He had been beaten and abused in many instances. And he comes to Athens. He says, uh, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Corinth. There he met a Jew named Achilla, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, the Roman emperor at the time, had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went with them, and because he was a tentmaker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So we're slowly making our way through the book of Acts, highlighting especially certain parts relevant to the epistles that we've also received. Last week, Thessalonians was read, and the chapter in which Paul goes to Thessalonica. This week, we're in Corinth. So Paul, after being in Athens, preaching there for a time, goes this short distance west to the city of Corinth. Corinth, the city from which we get, of course, these letters of Paul to the Corinthians, was, and actually still is, a Greek town, or a Roman town. It's Greek now, on the Greek peninsula. And I always think it's helpful to look at these things. So I actually brought a picture. Kurt, if you want to give us a nice slide. So here we are. This is the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, The bottom right is uh, Israel. You can see Jerusalem faintly, although it's kind of hard to read. And Paul is making his second journey now up through Turkey, what is now Turkey, what was once Galatia, and north through Thessalonica, which is, um, if you see the word Macedonia or Phyrom, kind of right in the middle, Thessalonica is just south in that little bay there. It goes down into Athens, and then our red marker is Corinth. Corinth, if we want to go to the next picture, is, you can see on this little isthmus, it's much like Panama, actually, in Central America, and so we've got a big harbor on the right and a big harbor on the left. And in the 1st century A.D., they actually scheduled to build a canal. This would have been about the time that Paul was writing this letter. All the way across, they were going to dig a canal, much like, much like the Panama Canal, to get from one side to the other, just to cut off that long uh, trek. And if you go to the next slide, you can see very faintly across the middle, there it is. Can you see it? It's about four miles long. Uh, That's a lot of digging. And though Rome had built far superior constructs in their time, for whatever reason, this one got postponed. Any guesses how long this one was postponed, the digging of? 1,800 years. We have a building project coming up. I hope it doesn't take 1,800 years for it to get accomplished. (laughs) Amen. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, 1,800-year delay. Uh, So instead, because they still didn't want to have to travel all the way down and around uh, this peninsula, there was a road called the Dialkos. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Dialkos? Uh, From one side to the other. And so they would unload the ships on the east or the west side, whichever it came in, and then they would actually lift the boat out of the water and roll it that whole four miles all the way across. (laughs) This is hard work. In Corinth, as a people, who is Corinth is a question that's worth, worth asking. Who is Corinth? What is Corinth? Corinth, as a people, is generally a hard-working group of people. A lot of them were ex-soldiers. A lot of them worked these docks here. And because it was a harbor town, a lot of them were just diverse people from around the known world at the time. And so, uh, as a diverse city, full of trade and various opportunities for pleasure and religious expression, as was the case in most of Rome, uh, it was also true, um, as in most of Rome, uh, built on a fairly strict class system. Uh, this was a sailor town. This was, this was rich people. This was poor people. This was salty lips and vulgar tongues. And Paul goes. So to this city west of Athens, Paul met a Jew named Acula, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius, the Roman emperor at the time, had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. So in a sense, Paul met refugees, the lowest of these class people, uh, and Paul went to them because he was a tent maker as they were. He stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade the Jews and Greeks. Every Sabbath, Paul declared the gospel to these people, but he was far from always welcome. The Jews here in Corinth, as seems to be a developing pattern throughout the book of Acts, were abusive to Paul such that God saw it fit to speak to him in a vision. Paul had already been beaten and imprisoned in multiple occasions and returned to the work without hesitation, but every single person needs encouragement after a while, and sometimes it's helpful when that comes in the form of a vision directly from God. And God said to him, the Lord said to Paul, saying, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul, encouraged by the Lord and his tent-making friends, along with all those that belonged to God in Corinth, stayed for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. Eventually, as is always the case, Paul had to leave town. Priscilla and Aquila left with him. They went to Ephesus. Crispus and Sosthenes, who are both mentioned in Acts 18, if you want to check it out, were both synagogue rulers and had become believers likely held some responsibility for the church. So they oversaw it for a time. Later, Apollos comes, who is another famous teacher of the Scriptures, a Jewish man. Uh, And, as is the case in a town like Corinth, where people are coming in and out frequently, many others strolled through, uh, having heard the gospel elsewhere from other apostles or from other disciples and were preaching the gospel to these people, strengthening the church of Corinth. But Paul, uh, not one to leave those whom he loves uh, on their own, one who cares deeply for the church of Jesus Christ, particularly the parts of the church that he has helped to plant and to, uh, to build, um, cares for them. And one of the ways he cares for them is through continued correspondence, either through Timothy or Chloe, who we read about in 1 Corinthians, going back and forth and communicating, or through letters that he writes. And 1 Corinthians is one of these letters that he writes Uh, but this book, 1 Corinthians, more than just a particular book to a particular group of salty sailor folk and refugees and people stuck in different tax brackets, is to us the very Word of God. This is a letter written to particular people about particular issues. The book of Romans is like a a general scope of all of Paul's best theology that he would deliver to anybody who would have ears to ear. Corinth is him answering specific questions. But it's a unique opportunity for us to hear because we're people who have specific questions and specific problems too. And we listen in, and God provided these words to us for our sake because the Spirit formed not only that church, but the same Spirit formed our church as one, both historically and globally, the church on heaven and on earth. And oddly enough, we find ourselves in actually a fairly similar particular situation to those people of Corinth at the time Paul is writing 1 Corinthians. As has been mentioned already, we have no pastors here. We're kind of orphans with each other this morning. I'm a director of worship. I'm not an ordained pastor. We've got elders and deacons who do a wonderful job to care for us, but we have no leader uh, of that sort. Both Stephen and Dustin are gone, and Dustin... Uh, is even on the brink of leaving us indefinitely. So in that Paul, the pastor of this church at Corinth, in its foundation and in its first years of growth, left them to themselves for a time, this morning we also find us to ourselves and maybe in need of a letter of encouragement. So I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians. It's a letter written to us and to those who came before us in Corinth. So hear these words, given to us by God as they were intended for them, because so they are intended for us. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank God for you because of His grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in Him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and in all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. And I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ... That all of you agree with one another, so that there may be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this one of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another says, I follow Cephas, who is Peter. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I am thankful that I did not baptize any of you, except Crispus and Gaius, so that that no one can say that you were baptized into my name. And yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus, but beyond that I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world, the shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before Him. It is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Not many of you are wise, influential, or of noble birth. How rude for him to say such a thing. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Jews demand miraculous signs. And Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. We preach Christ crucified. Where is the wise man? We preach Christ crucified. Which is the power of God to those of us who are being saved. We preach Christ crucified. The message of the cross that is foolishness to those who are perishing. But this one Lord Jesus Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. This is the grace of God in Christ Jesus by which God brought us into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the Lord Jesus Christ who sanctified us, knit us together with all who call upon His name. The one for whom we await his coming day, the day of the Lord, the one who is God among us, who is Christ crucified. There is one Lord, his name is Jesus Christ. Boast in him alone. In the first ten verses of 1 Corinthians, Paul uses the name or the phrase, the Lord Jesus Christ, I think, eleven times or some variation of it. It's almost as if he wants us to hear the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, not Paul, not Apollos, not any other wise man or powerful man or woman. Boast in him alone, and yet he retorts them: "You were saying you follow Paul. You were saying you follow Apollos, and yet there are divisions among you." I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another, so that there may be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? These were the questions he asks those of the Corinthian church and they're the same questions that ring true for us today in this very sanctuary. Is Christ divided? Were you baptized into the name of I'm aware that unity is not the only goal. Fairly often appeals to unity are just appeals to lose focus, um, to uh, misguided tolerance, to dispel truth or to serve some other unrighteous goal oftentimes. Oh, unite, unite with us. Unite with us is a a plea for uh, us not to be convicted of our sins. But in Christ, unity is fundamental. Jesus himself is not divided. He prays in John 17 that we would be one like he and the Father are one. Here, Paul, in his name, appeals to us to be united. We have an opportunity here without our pastors here. We don't have to have a face or a front up. We get to be honest with ourselves. They would hate if we had a face up, if they were in our presence, but let's be honest with ourselves. Who are we? And maybe more importantly, where is our unity? Are we united? Or is Christ divided among us? Is Christ divided even within your own heart? If I am being honest with you, when I look out at all of you, I don't see a harshly divided community. We are by and large a very hospitable group. And I know each one of you has been and is to me. And we set that out as a primary goal of ours, to be hospitable, to invite one another in. And I have experienced great pleasure and assurance in each one of you, in the Lord. And God has given us together as many spiritual gifts as we need to serve one another and to love one another in unity. And I am also quite confident that if I asked any one of you, who do you follow? You would not quarrel with one another, saying, I follow Paul or I follow Paulus." And while I know pastoral decisions of the past have not all been unanimous, I'm also quite certain none of you, if asked, would quarrel with one another, saying, well, actually, I follow Stephen or I prefer Dustin or... This one is the one who leads me. I see in you a people who are very grateful for the work of the many pastors you've been given over to for the years, uh, but who say boldly with one another, I follow Christ and none other. And for that, I am genuinely grateful for you. But I'd like us to take a look this morning, maybe a larger view, at how our congregation fits into the larger picture of the Christian church in the world today. And maybe how even our congregation with its air of unity uh, could be stronger in the way we we understand the body of Christ undivided in the world. So let's take a look at the Christian church as a whole. There is only one Christ, so it should stand that there is only one church of Christ. And is that the case? Well, not even close. Not even close in the world. Now, it's hard to maintain practical unity in a global institution, which the church is. So, of course, it would have multiple expressions. We would expect this. So, in uh, 1054, a long time ago, there was a great schism between the East and the West, what we now call the Orthodox and the Catholic churches. And that seemed reasonable. There was a lot of cultural difference, so they split. And then there seems, at other times, very good reasons. The Reformation is one we, as a Protestant Reformed church, hold pretty dearly to as a good and important split from the Catholic church. The church splits in multiple ways, and many persons follow their favorite theologians. We like John Calvin here. We liked Albertus van Rolte, who planted us. And here in Holland, uh, you'd think that as a Dutch community united in culture and in mind and single Reformed theologian, we would have some sort of unity, the Dutch Reformed Church. But even this unity was completely dismantled. It split multiple times, first from the Church of Amsterdam, then from itself. And many of us here are intimately familiar with the differences between the CRC and the RCA, and we have actually close and even sensitive memories of the violence and vitriol of that split. And even now in the RCA, I don't know how many of you know, Just last, in the last weeks, um, there's been special committees meeting over certain issues, hot topic, political and cultural issues. And the church, the RCA, a largely homogenous group of Dutch people with the same culture and heritage, are almost certainly going to split again, unless something miraculous happens. Whichever side of the uh, right or left this decision falls on, there will be churches who want to leave. And all of these splits throughout all of history, these are not splits like branches that grow and that spread and cover more land and more earth. No, these splits are like axes to logs that just chop in half. That just chop us up. And the scariest part is that we're so good at it. We're so quick to do it. We do it all the time. This is our greatest skill, is seeing our disagreement, seeing our our neighbor is our enemy and separating ourselves from them. And it's not just the Dutch Reformed Church, it's the whole church at large that we're a part of. But this is a sort of external division. And I don't know about you, but I am. Uh, I have have no wisdom, I have no insight, I have no input on how in the world we begin to resolve millennia of conflict between our brothers. And so this morning I have a different question for each one of us to consider because I think this is the only way that we can actually begin approaching unity. At least it's one important way. So here's my question, here's my concern. To what extent is the outward disunity that we see globally and historically and even in our own neighborhoods in the church, to what extent is that outward disunity an evidence of our own inward dispositions towards Christ? Our churches are not unified the way they ought to be. So my question is, is your heart, is your own heart within your own body unified the way that it ought to be in Christ? Are you of one mind even with yourself? Do you love God with your whole heart? Or are you split between loves? Do you follow Christ wholly even within yourself? Or does part of you say, I follow Christ while another says, I actually follow this, or I actually follow this, or I actually, if I'm being honest with myself this morning, follow something altogether unworthy of Christ in me. I may speak about unity, but how can I have unity with my brother and sister who are different than me? when I can't even have unity in my own self. Last time I preached, I mentioned the, the second commandment of the Ten Commandments, which reads like this, You shall not make for yourself an idol. Do not bow down to them or worship them. Uh, one of the Hebrew verbs here for worship them is a funny form called hofal, meaning uh, it's, it's got causative and passive action which means an adequate translation for this would be, do not be caused to worship these idols. Is this not what Paul is talking about when he talks about worldly wisdom and the strength of the world? How easily are we swayed by arguments? How easily are we compelled by the powerful? We see them, we see the wise, we see the mighty who have a strong sword who have a dizzying intellect and can spin their enemies or their opponents into the ground. And we want to be like them. That's wisdom that we can be united under. To those at Corinth, Paul and Apollos became heroes and they wanted to follow them. We might not say we follow others in the church or in any religious sort of way, but how often are we swayed by our favorite politicians, by our favorite authors, by our favorite correspondents, by our favorite people? To even just ever so slightly split our allegiance or split our hope or split our trust or our expectation that unity in the world and unity in the body of Christ is something that comes wholly and only in Christ crucified and the power of the Holy Spirit in us. Are you united even in yourself that the power of God for the salvation of the world is in Jesus Christ and Him crucified? but there's good news too. Because even though I know I'm divided in my own body sometimes and often, even though I know that, as Larry said, we have to come to confess our sins in order to be renewed by the Lord and forgiven, that though we're divided, we look at the table and we look at the cross. And we see that Christ, His own body, was divided in order that we might be unified as one. Christ preaches, Paul preaches Christ crucified and we preach Christ crucified because it's in Christ crucified that all of our divisions, that all of our tendencies, that all of our hatred towards one another gets taken up. And when His body is broken and when His body is split, ironically, mysteriously, there we find ourselves one together again. At the table, at the foot of the cross, who of us can boast above another that we are stronger, that we have greater wisdom than our neighbor, that we could overcome the disease and the sickness of the world by any way other than through humility and kneeling? In Jesus' own body, and His death and in His resurrection, He not only united us to God in his incarnation, God and man together, he not only united us to one another, bringing us to the table, but he even united us even in our own hearts. At least we have the opportunity. He gave us the two commands. Love God with your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And in these, in the cross of Christ, they're fulfilled, and they can be fulfilled in us. The wisdom of the world saw Christ on the cross and saw foolishness. This was the Greeks. They saw a stumbling block. This was the Jews. But to us, we see the power of God. My prayer for us this morning, simple, is that every day, in the morning and in the evening and throughout, you would ask yourself, am I divided? And that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would be able to say in yourself, no, this is Christ in me. I share in him with mind and in thought. And as the power of the Spirit fills us in unity and whole devotion to the Lord, we would find ourselves united with one another and slowly the walls that we've built up and the work of cutting trees down that we've done over the millennia of the church be brought back together be grafted in as one body. This is the word of the Lord for us today and we give thanks to God. Would you pray with me? Father, I ask that you would would unite us in our mind, in our heart, in you. I pray that you would unite us with our neighbors next door to us in our homes whom we have neglected. I pray that in Holland, the many churches from many cultures would not be defined by their Dutchness or their Hispanicness or their uh, Cambodianness or uh, their Wesleyanness or their Dutchness or Reformedness or whatever other markers, but that, Lord, you would identify us and mark us by Christ, together, united in mind. And I pray for the RCA specifically as we address issues of homosexuality and ordination and marriage and um, love, Lord, that you would unite us in your mind and in your spirit. Father, would we not be ashamed of our weakness? But Lord, would we boast in you in the power of the cross? Pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord.